Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, Marvel firmly plants its flag in the TV landscape, announcing its next TV show will start right after its first one is done. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun. I'll review a new Netflix movie starring Gary Mulligan and Ray Fiennes. I'll let you know if I dug the dig. I checked out that Framing Britney Spears documentary, and I actually have a mea culpa to offer of sorts based on that. I'll offer a second take on The Butler vs. Greenland, and I'll tell you about a show that I finally watched after it's been sitting on my PVR for almost a year. The Super Bowl always gives us more than a football game, and this year we got a new trailer for Disney Plus's upcoming Marvel show, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So... Who would like to start? Mr. Barnes, why does Sam aggravate you? 15 seconds to drop. So what's our plan? Great. Superheroes cannot be allowed to exist. I have no intention to leave my work unfinished. The world's upside down right now. Where do we start? Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan will reprise their MCU roles as the Falcon and the Winter Soldier in what looks like an action-packed buddy cop show type deal. And I think that's exactly what I want from these guys. They have a fun chemistry in the movies. It's a frenemy thing where they gladly team up together, but there's still a little tension from the rocky start to their relationship. It looks super cool and will be the fix that a lot of Marvel fans have been waiting for. The pandemic, of course, threw the movie schedule out of whack. And as much as we love WandaVision, it doesn't really involve a lot of punching and kicking. So I think we're all looking forward to The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Brett, which debuts on Disney Plus March 19th. Yeah, I loved the chemistry those guys had in the movies where uh, Winter Soldier is sitting in the back seat and asks Falcon, can you move the seat up? And he says, no. No. And then uh, when they're after Spider-Man beats the two of them up, um, Falcon just says, uh, "I oh, one of them says you couldn't have done that sooner. And the other says, I hate you. So it's just it's so funny that the two of them are now best buds of of sorts and are, are hanging out. And then they have their little staring contest at the end of the trailer. And the person says, how old are you guys? I'm like, my God. So, yeah, this looks fun. The The action looks tremendous. I've always enjoyed Falcon and the way that they sort of almost strap the camera to his back, so to speak, as so you get these dizzying views. So, yeah, I'm uh, very excited to see Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And WandaVision Season 1 is set to end on March 5th. So they'll, there'll be like a two-week break, and then it's on to the next one. And then Loki, by all accounts, is set to debut in May. So Marvel is, is really coming out hard with their TV stuff, and especially in the absence of the films, I guess that's kind of good for them to keep their stuff going. Yeah, that's it is good. I don't like that these things keep coming out on Fridays, though, because, you know, we're working Friday morning, yet my Twitter uh, feed is clogged with spoilers of WandaVision and stuff. So I try and ignore that. And then by the time I sort of wake up from my nap on Friday afternoon, I've forgotten that it's there. And like, I didn't watch WandaVision this week until Tuesday, just because I <laughs> forgot about it altogether. I was like, oh, yeah, WandaVision. And it's, you know, it's a I'm, we're old enough now that we, we still got PVRs and stuff. And it's like, well, I checked my PVR to see 
what I forgot to watch, and it's not on the PVR, of course, because it's just streaming on Disney, so it's not really top of mind like uh, stuff sitting on your PVR is. But uh, uh, what is it? Episode 6 of WandaVision comes out this weekend, so we've only seen up to 5. How have you been enjoying it now? It's been uh, progressing the last couple of weeks. They're actually like they're moving on to something. They've we sort of know what the show's about now. Well, I've loved the whole thing. I very much enjoyed the the, the send up, the the honoring of TV shows and TV formats from years past. I think it's been uh, great fun, and I there was just enough sort of flex of this uh, mystery. You know, there was enough. I thought that they were dangling the carrot just enough to let you know, okay, there's something going on here, and uh, they've since moved further into that, so it looks like it's full, going to be full steam ahead in the next episode. So I am very curious to know just what is happening. Is Wanda in control of what's happening, or is someone in control of Wanda? Or is it something completely different? I don't know. So, But Marvel has never... I won't say never, but has rarely led us astray. So I have full faith Absolutely. that this is going to blow our minds when it's all done. Yeah, and I like what you said about mystery because it's got that, still got that that hook that Lost had into me, where it's like, oh, now I do want to know what's going on, and I'll first I'll sort of think about, oh, I think it might be this, it might be this, and then I'm I'm always just way wrong, like I was with Lost. So, but it, they're keeping it interesting. So yeah, like you said, we'll find out in the weeks to come what that all means. Meantime, Brett, I finished my MCU film rewatch, all 23 movies from Iron Man to Spider Man: Far From Home, of course, with the grand finale really being Avengers Endgame. The world will never be the same. Avengers Endgame is shattering records across the globe. Part of the journey. It's the end. Be a part of cinematic history. Avengers! Assemble. Avengers Endgame, now playing. I started my MCU rewatch sometime in October. I was in no rush. I've sort of been keeping the schedule of this podcast I listened to that's been covering it. And I mean, wow, we were impressed movie by movie as it was happening over the past 13 years. But to watch them all in a row like that in a couple of months, it's only more apparent how good a job the folks over at Marvel did with each movie on its own merit. And of course, the overall story and not just the Infinity Saga itself with the stones and everything, but just the general world building. The whole thing is has consistently been ramping up and snowballing all the way along. And then you get a pretty amazing stretch uh, right near the end with Spider-Man Homecoming, Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, Infinity War, just boom, 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 boom. Those are all uh, four of the top ten movies in the series, I would say. And then, of course, the big finale with Endgame, uh, which brings everything together and sends off a couple of heroes in a very fitting fashion. It's also maybe the fastest three-hour movie I've ever seen. It's broken up nicely. The first hour is, you know, reaction to the blip and getting the team together. Second hour is the time heist. The third hour is the big battle and all the endings. And that time heist is just genius. I mean, the big battle is amazing, but we sort of knew walking in that that was going to be coming. I mean, how could you top off this story without having a massive battle involving literally everybody? But to come up with that time heist story and send the Avengers backwards in time through the previous movies, it was like a like a greatest hits album, you know, after 
rewatching all the other movies in the last couple of months too, that time house plays even better because it's all fresh in your head. You have a real sense of who and what or where at any given moment. Um, and that was a real eye opener for me in a lot of these movies because I had forgot a lot of them. Some of these movies felt very fresh. I totally forgot that Rachel McAdams was in Doctor Strange. I forgot Jude Law was in Captain Marvel. I forgot Walton Goggins was an Ant-Man and the Wasp. I forgot 99% of what happens in Thor The Dark World and that actually turned out to be a pretty important movie for Endgame. So it was a nice refresher in many cases and it's actually paid off while watching WandaVision. Agent Rambo is a little girl in Captain Marvel. Agent Wu is an Ant-Man and the Wasp and uh, in WandaVision when he first walks up to Rambo and he whips out a business card he does it like it's a close-up magic trick that's a carryover joke from Ant-Man and the Wasp where he falls in love with close-up magic it's a running joke throughout that movie I love when they get the those kind of details right and keep them flowing throughout well the tv the movies and now of course the tv shows excuse me um the major detail, though, that the MCU biffs, that still drives me crazy, is uh, when eight years later pops up on the screen in Spider-Man Homecoming, following the Avengers Battle of New York, which was in 2012, which means that Spider-Man movie is set in 2020, and that's just wrong. It's not. Um, they admit they screwed that up, but I still don't understand how that kind of a blunder makes it all the way through what must be hundreds or thousands of sets of eyes before it gets to a movie theater. It's, that one just blows my mind. Honestly, though, to have a 23-movie project and only have one real gripe, that's pretty good. The degree of difficulty was very high. They pulled it off beautifully. Even the movies that get you know crapped on the most, like The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Thor Dark World, Captain Marvel, they're good movies. They're not as good as the others, but they're still quite good. Captain Marvel, I think, is very underrated. It undoubtedly suffered from the fact that by then we were so hungry for Endgame that it was kind of irritating to have to take the Captain Marvel detour first. And going back to the beginning, watching the first Iron Man again, that now does actually feel like it's pretty old. I mean, most people didn't even have smartphones and it was the year 2008, for goodness sakes. I think my favorite still Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Not just a great superhero movie, but a, it's got a cool spy thriller vibe. There's a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat, a cool car chase with Nick Fury, and an amazing street shootout. On the other hand, Endgame hits so hard emotionally and pays off every promise made along the way. That's hard to top. And even though, you know, that's the grand finale for the Avengers, uh, I'm, I'm still, I'm really glad they, you know, quickly followed it up with Spider-Man Far From Home to close out phase three of the MCU, Brad, only because it answered a lot of the lingering questions about the Hulk snap from Endgame and what the world looks like after that. It's a great Spider-Man movie, but also a very uh, fitting coda for the Infinity Saga. I wrote a couple other final rankings here. I think Iron Man 3 might be the most underrated of the bunch. I was most pleasantly surprised rewatching that one. The Incredible Hulk was better than I thought it was going to be when it's that title. Worse than I thought it was going to be. I'll, I'll give to Guardians 2. I really loved it when it came out. And uh, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all, still my favorite line. But it's not nearly as good as Guardians 1. And the movie I'm most looking forward to down the stretch of the ones they've announced so far, I think there's uh, the upcoming Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. That's a solid, solid recap of the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe, and you've now made me want to potentially take this on as a task. Hey, we got to tell you, sticking with Disney, we just got to tell you something. I think insane is, is maybe the best word to describe it. I couldn't believe it when I read the headline of what happened in the Star Wars galaxy of Disney+. Plus. Details in a moment. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. And we got to tell you now, we were just talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, their TV shows. We got to switch from one Disney franchise, Marvel, to another, Star Wars, because something 
just stunningly stupid happened this week. Cara Dune, Marshal of the New Republic. I need you to locate someone in the prison registry. Ex-Imperial sharpshooter, last name Mayfeld. Serving 50 years in the Carthon chalk fields, accessory to the death of a New Republic officer. So here's the headline. Uh, you just Google Gina Carano and you'll find dozens of headlines. This one is at Deadline. Lucasfilm calls Gina Carano's social media posts abhorrent. Actress no longer employed by Mandalorian Studio. She has been very controversial on social media now for months. And her recent posts, her most recent posts, have gotten her in trouble because she was taught comparing one situation to Nazi Germany. And that tends to not go very well for anybody who makes such a comparison. So Disney punted her just as she was basically on the verge of real stardom. And that's why I'm so mad because she took this amazing opportunity. She's on one of the biggest shows on the planet. Her popularity was surging. I think at one point on IMDb, they have something called a star meter, which essentially tracks like their popularity on that website. And she was ranked higher than the main star, Pedro Pascal. Like she was genuinely going to have a star-studded career. She was likely going to be in that spin-off show, Rangers of the New Republic. And now she's gone and blown it all because she couldn't keep her mouth shut on social media. Like, Jeff, I'm just beside myself with... <laughs> I don't know why it's bothering me so much. I think it just the sheer stupidity is is yeah. making me angry. Because it's it was just so preventable, and it's such a hard fall from, like, the height that she was climbing to. It's Yeah, it's, it's, it blow, it's truly baffling when people just blow up their careers like this, like you said. I, I can't understand. I could see if you were on some crappy show and you were like the eighth build person or something like that, go ahead, mouth off, say whatever you want. Nobody cares. But when you're climbing up the ladder of, the, like you said, the biggest show in the galaxy right now, it's, it's insane. As we told you last week, two big shows debuted on Global this past week. Clarice, which follows the events of Silence of the Lambs, that debuted on Thursday, Although we haven't seen it yet because we're actually recording this episode on Thursday afternoon. So for us, Clarice airs tonight. For you, it will have already aired. The other big one debuted after the Super Bowl. What's up with you, Mom? Out of nowhere, you quit your job last month. Want to talk about it? It's complicated. This new side gig of yours is raising questions to CIA. No one asked. I don't want to fit him anymore. What are you? Some kind of ex-cop? Queen Latifah is. I'm the one you call. And you can't call that one. The Equalizer. Special premiere episode Sunday, February 7th after the big game on Global. Yes, The Equalizer, of course, it first aired in the 1980s in a show starring Edward Woodward, then in 2014 and 2018 as a pair of movies starring Denzel Washington, and now Queen Latifah is The Equalizer. She plays Robin McCall, a woman to, with a mysterious background who uses her extensive skills to help those with nowhere else to turn, acting as a guardian angel and a defender for those who cannot defend themselves while pursuing her own redemption. I loved the original TV show when I was a kid. I liked the movies with Denzel. Didn't love them, but I kind of want to watch them again because Denzel is so cool. And now it's Queen Latifah who is so cool as the equalizer. And the first episode was fun, but it was not without fault because it very much feels like it came out of a network TV meat grinder where they just throw in all the tropes and usual plays that they might call, for example, Queen Latifah 
I know that's not her character's name, but Queen Latifah is a cooler name. So Queen Latifah has a couple of handy allies. A woman who runs a bar, but she's actually a sharpshooting sniper and overall badass. But there also has to be a hacker, right? Every network TV show about crime has to have a hacker. And this hacker is the husband of the aforementioned badass. He's in the basement of the bar, sitting in front of what appears to be a 150-inch monitor. Because why not? Break into police and government databases? Piece of cake. Oh, and look at the size of my screen. I mean business. Plus, if my screen is big, then it's easier for the viewer to see what is happening, which means less talky-talky, more hacky-hacky. Also, the action was very network TV, not the best choreography. Lots of super clever but not exactly graceful editing uh, to make Queen Latifah look like a badass herself. I'm not saying she's not a badass, but watching these scenes, it just felt... Forced. The action was just weak and 61% on Rotten Tomatoes. But look, it's a fun network TV show. It did pretty good in the ratings, 20 million viewers for CBS in the States, but that's apparently the lowest post-Super Bowl ratings ever. So hopefully it doesn't drop off too much. But like I said, it's it's fun fluff. The Equalizer, Queen Latifah's cool. She's the reason to watch it because she's awesome. Up next, Jeff's got a review of a movie that's burning charts up on Netflix. And I got to tell you about this Britney Spears documentary. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And a new Netflix movie scratched a very specific itch for me this week. It's called The Dig. Things like this are usually done through museums. Yes, but with the war coming, they couldn't embark upon any new ventures. Well, I've been on digs since I was old enough to hold a trowel. My father taught me. What are they? We're standing in someone's graveyard, I reckon. Viking? Well, maybe older. Mr. Brown is an archaeologist. Well, I'm an excavator. You've come to dig up the mounds. Do so you think there's something beneath? The Dig stars Carrie Mulligan, Ray Fiennes, and Lily James. It's a small-scope British period piece. It's slow and not much happens, and I like those kind of movies, but I know that's not for everyone. It's set in Suffolk, England in 1939, just as World War II is about to erupt. Mulligan plays Edith Pretty, a rich widow with a young son. She's also clearly pretty sick, and on their land there are these big mysterious mounds, a series of little hills that are clearly man-made, but also covered in grass, so you know they've been there for a while. She enlists Ray Fine's character, Basil Brown, an excavator who works at the local museum in Ipswich. He's not a real archaeologist, but she says she can't afford a real archaeologist, so she hires him to dig up one of the mounds to see if they can get to the bottom of it, both literally and figuratively. He suggests immediately it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for there to be something like Viking treasure buried in there. They do end up unearthing something pretty big in the world of archaeology, and it draws other archaeologists from the big museums in London. And Ray Fine sort of gets pushed aside. He does stay to help with the dig, but he's not in charge. Mrs. Pretty likes him, though, and her boy likes him. He's always hanging around the dig site. So this new group of people includes Lily James, a passionate woman married to a man who pays no attention to her. She catches the eye of another man, so there's some love drama there. And of course, the specter of war is hanging over everything. When war breaks out, the archaeologists know that their dig will be cancelled by the government as it'll be all hands on deck to fight the Nazis. So the movie just kind of goes along as they continue to unearth their find in the mound. And there's a lot of 
existential metaphor surrounding our time on Earth and looking to the past to define the present. Like I said, not much happens. There are a couple of exciting incidents, but it's a very low-key affair. And it's just what I was looking for, um, you know, curled up on a cold night with a cup of tea, watching olden-time Brits act gently with each other is something I find very relaxing. If you are in the mood for it, it's good. A lot of people are going to call this movie boring, though. And like I said at the top, it's just not for everyone. I also love Ray Fiennes and Carrie Mulligan, although I haven't seen her in a ton of stuff. I am looking forward to her movie, Promising Young Woman, for which she's getting a lot of award nominations. Ray Fiennes, though, is always great. He's one of my favorite. This is a bit of a departure from his usual part, where he either plays a bad guy or a good guy who isn't really good, like in The English Patient or The Grand Budapest Hotel. He gets wise old man roles now, and it suits him. He's also using an accent here that I've not heard him use before. I guess it's some local Suffolk, England accent. I don't know. In the end, I'm sticking with recommending this. Again, if you are predisposed to enjoying movies set 80 years ago in England that move pretty slow but have nice scenery, it's not a scenario, Brett, where I'm going to badger my friends to see a movie that I know is outside their comfort zone because I'm so convinced the movie's good enough to win them over like I did with Parasite, for example. But instead, if you like this kind of movies, check it out. It's a minor movie. Ten years ago, it probably would have played on one or two screens in a city during its theatrical release. So in that regard, you can sort of, you know, thank God for Netflix because these kind of movies can still get made. Three couch cushions out of five for The Dig. It's a small scope British period piece it's slow and not much happens. That's right. <laughs> that makes me just want to run out and watch that. But guess what? A lot of people are watching it. It's no longer in the overall top 10. It in, was though, right? It was in the top 10 and it's still in the top 10 movies. Okay. So a lot of people are watching this show because I think it's scratching. For a lot of people, it's just scratching the itch of The Crown. Now that The Crown. Yeah is gone. Um, and for me, it was, uh, especially with Lily James in it, also, uh, you know, reminded me at times of uh, Downton Abbey. So. Now, I want to tell you about something that isn't, ev- depends on the moment of the day, it seems, as to whether or not you can actually watch this now. But I was able to watch it on YouTube when it was still there. Framing Britney Spears. Brittany was so serious and so focused. This is a girl that's coming from strength. She was so open and vulnerable. How we treated her was disgusting. Brittany had to navigate being told who she could be and what she could do. People became fascinated with her sort of unraveling. She accepted that the conservatorship was going to happen, but she didn't want her father to be conservative. That was her one request. And anytime there's that amount of money to be made, you have to question the motives of everyone close to that person. Do they always have her best interest at heart? Something is going on behind the scenes here. I didn't understand what a conservatorship is, especially for somebody capable of so much that I know firsthand she's capable of. Why is she still in this? Why is her dad making all of her decisions? What do we want? Free Britney! All right, so this is from the New York Times. The New York Times presents Framing Britney Spears. This aired in the United States on Hulu. Unfortunately, they say that it's not coming to Canada anytime soon. Like I said, uh, I watched it on YouTube, and I've been checking throughout the week, and it keeps popping up. I think it was actually on her official Vivo channel, 
but it has since been removed there. So at the moment, as I record this show, as we record this show, I checked it a couple of minutes ago. It was there. So you might be able to find it. You might not. Wanted to tell you about it, though, because it's about, as you mentioned, as you heard the word conservatorship. This is a word I'd never even heard before this documentary, but this has to do with a legal fight over Britney Spears's finances and her conservatorship, which centers on the legal arrangement that has given her father, Jamie, control over her estate, career, and other aspects of her personal life, including medical treatment for the past 13 years. And uh, she's decided she's had enough. She wants her dad out as conservator, saying that she is afraid of her father and would not resume her career while he controlled it. So that's actually went back to court this week. But this particular documentary, what they do is they they say in order for you to understand what's happening now with this conservatorship and understand this free Britney movement, we need to take you back. So they take us all the way back to the beginning and they show us all of the garbage that Britney Spears has had to put up with over the years. And one of the reasons why I wanted to specifically talk about this is because I, not that she ever would have heard what I had to say about it, but I, I'm complicit in some of this garbage because of what I said on this very show. And there's a great headline on this that went something along the lines of Britney Spears' documentary forces us all to reckon with our own complicity. And just look up Britney Spears' reckoning, and you'll see headline after headline, cultural reckoning. There's going to be a reckoning. The reckoning is happening right now. In 2007, you might remember, that's when she had a breakdown. She shaved her head. And she came back later that year and performed at the MTV Video Music Awards and sang Gimme More. And she was criticized for the performance, largely because she... Just seemed she didn't have any energy and she she was forget I think she was forgetting to lip sync at points. It wasn't her best performance, but I specifically remember criticizing her for her appearance because I was she was wearing clothes that were very revealing and I think I said something like you're you're not in shape. You're not in good enough shape yet to be wearing that, so put that away. And uh <laughs> Well, look, that's disgusting anytime. In 2007, I guess, for whatever reason, I thought it was acceptable to come on the radio and say something like that. But it's funny how much things have changed since then. Like that kind of, that kind of thought even would never enter my mind, never mind what I think to say it on the radio. And the mental health stuff, like the conversation has changed so much on mental health since then. And she paid such a price for her issues whereas if something were something like, like that were to happen today she would probably be met with kindness and compassion and empathy but instead she was soundly mocked she became the butt of late night talk show jokes craig ferguson was the only one who openly said i'm not making jokes about britney spears and uh, just all of the questions she had to endure the misogynistic questions and not just from male reporters but female uh, interviewers as well asking her like diane sawyer was questioning her after the Justin Timberlake breakup and and she like put it was like she was putting Britney on trial. What did you do? Why did you why is Justin so hurt? Well, what about her side of the story? So just when you go back and you you watch the this life of this pop star who we built up to be like a goddess 
essentially. And then when her life started to fall apart, it essentially became a spectator sport to watch her demise and participate in it. And I am, I'm ashamed of any part I had in just in contributing to that culture. So that's why I think it's... And I, and I love Britney Spears. I've always loved her music. And yes, I used to think she was hot, and I still think she's a beautiful woman. But the fact that I that I sort of went along with some of this stuff, I just feel, you know, like I, I'm glad this documentary is out because it forced me to re-examine what I thought of Britney Spears. And it was just a very well-done documentary. So if you can find it, Watch it. It runs about an hour 15. Hopefully it will be released legally somewhere in Canada soon. Framing Britney Spears by the New York Times. It's excellent, excellent stuff. Up next, I got to tell you about a show that has been sitting on my PVR for almost a year. And I finally, finally watched it. And you know what? It's perfect viewing for a cold weekend. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. I've been wanting to tell you about this now for a few weeks, especially before it warms up out there. I finally watched a few weeks ago the fourth and final season of this show. I say finally because it aired last April and May, and it's just been sitting on my PVR ever since. I'm talking about the amazing Canadian crime drama Cardinal. They found a body. It's not my department anymore. They think it might be her. I'm glad to be working on this with you. He stalked her. He picked his moment and he struck. And who does that? A repeater. So this is what you are now. The most dangerous thing in the world. A broken man. Cardinal debuted in January 2017. It's adapted from Giles Blunt's John Cardinal Mysteries series. John Cardinal is a detective in the fictional town of Algonquin Bay in Northern Ontario. It is a dark, dark show. Violent, sad, tragic, haunting, but also beautiful and excellent. And I think it's a great show to watch in the winter because the first season is set in winter final season is set in winter and i think maybe that's why i didn't watch it last year when it was april may because i did like the first three seasons debuted in january so it's like a perfect winter show it's i like watching darker stuff in sort of the dead of winter but april may spring had arrived we were all wanting to you know is the when the pandemic seemed to be calming down in the first wave so we all just wanted to get out and do stuff so i just left this on the back burner uh the the first three seasons all involve grizzly murder and the same can be said about the fourth like i said it's not a feel-good show but it's prestige tv as far as i'm concerned it feels like a nordic noir kind of show and that fourth season starts with a prominent politician's husband getting abducted and then left outside in the cold to die from exposure and then more bodies start to pile up in the frozen grip of winter. I loved season one, liked season two, can't quite remember season three, but I know I liked it. And I loved season four, which is funny because my dad, he likes the show too. So a couple of years ago, I bought him all the books. There are five books, but only four seasons. He says he did not like the final season because they combined the fourth and fifth books so I could see that being messy, but I haven't read the book, so what do I care? Uh, one of the reasons I think it's a great show to watch in the winter is because the climate in the show isn't just there. 
it's part of the essence of the show. It's almost a character. You know, they've got these big, wide exposition shots that let you not just see, but feel the barren landscape in the winter. Or season two is largely set in deep in a forest with these tight waterways that go through it. It's claustrophobic. And then the wide winter shots in season four are back, and they're both breathtaking and just heartbreaking. And the show has excellent acting, led by Billy Campbell as Cardinal and Karin Vanasse as his partner, Lise Delorme. And it's Canadian, and it doesn't hide from the fact that it's Canadian. Like, it's not a show that's made in Canada, but it's meant to be sort of nondescript so it can play anywhere. Like, it embraces the fact that it's Canadian. It played in over 100 territories around the world, including the United States. So it was nice to see something that felt like it could have come from Europe, but was made right here in Canada, shot predominantly in Sudbury, North Bay, and occasionally Toronto. You can find Carnal, by the way, on Crave, Four seasons, six episodes each. It is gripping, outstanding television. If there's ever an argument about the best Canadian TV shows ever made, and I don't mean your favorite shows, but the best shows, Cardinal has got to be in that discussion. Highly recommended. It is wonderful. Like I said, sad, but wonderful television. We got about 90 seconds here. I just got to quickly mention, I uh, have a second thought to offer on this. Good morning, you got to go. But the sky's on fire. The inbound comments are being called planet killers. I swear I'm going to get my family to safety. There'll be more planes tomorrow. There won't be a tomorrow. Greenland with PG-13. Jeff Braun, I ventured into the Butlerverse to watch nice. Greenland. What did you give it last week? I gave it four couch cushions out of five, I believe. I would That would be my assessment as well. Four couch cushions out of five. You, you watched it on the screener. I tried to watch it on the screener, but it just wasn't going to work on my phone. And I'm so glad I didn't try to power through it on my phone because this was a great movie to watch on a big screen. I loved it. I thought it was a, a really good disaster movie that felt realistic. You know, like it wasn't... Uh, it, I, I didn't find it hammy. I didn't find it over the top. It just was about this family trying to get out. And um, it was scary. And it was well done. And you're right. Yeah. Marina Baccarin in particular was just rock solid. Yeah, for sure. And that's what you said. Like, it's it's realistic. Like, if that were ever to happen, that feels like how it would happen. Yeah, to watch how, how quickly society collapsed in the span of hours... It's believable because you got to believe that that's probably what's going to happen. Eventually, if you, when you realize that it's about to go down, you got to take care of yourself. What are you willing to do in order to do that? That's all the time we've got. Greenland, by the way, is on Prime Video. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.